Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. The marketplace of ideas depends on the notion that the best ideas will win out. The reason why hate speech and racist speech is protected by law in most cases in our country is because we assume that the truth will prevail. In universities, the assumption is that students will be able to differentiate between good ideas and bad ideas, correct ideas and incorrect ideas, and that ultimately the truth will win out. Join me in a conversation with Professor David Chi, who teaches English at the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire. He talks about how students and all of us can be empowered to use free speech to improve society and how we can differentiate between good and bad ideas. I'm very excited to have a guest today on Think About It, who is Professor David Shee, who is professor at the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire, professor of English. David, if I can refer to you as David, you've worked in the university in different capacities of professor of English in different ways of improving um, the campus climate and sort of the conditions for faculty, staff, and students. And you, over the last two or three years, you've participated in this national conversation on free speech on campus by writing what I thought was a very thoughtful piece for NPR for their program Code Switch and participating in campus debates. I've watched them as much as I could online of your debates And I wanted to start talking about how you see the speech controversies that are happening in today's sort of climate in relation to sort of where we are in the country today. If you can start there, and what motivated you to jump into the fray in a, in a constructive way? Sure. 
Well, you know, as, as somebody who's been a professor since 1999 and, and you know, I spent so many years on campus, the same campus, reading these pieces about the so-called free speech controversy was really interesting to me because it contradicted in many ways my experience as an educator, as a longtime educator, when it comes to issues of free speech on campus. And what I mean by that is if you're disconnected from uh, academia, if you're not part of the university, either as a student, faculty, or staff member, and you read these articles, and, and, and they're fairly consistent coming out in national publications, and then also coming out on cable television, you probably would believe, or there'd be a very good chance that you would believe that this is a real thing, that, that there is a, an outbreak of intolerance for free speech on campuses that is claiming victims left and right, and predominantly, if you will, on the right. And as I said, it just didn't seem as though that correlated with my own experiences. And I don't doubt that it is happening, uh, that there are incidents nationally that do have to do with this issue. I just didn't see it as consistently as these pieces made it seem. And so when I wrote the piece for NPR, it was partly in response to the idea that this controversy seems to be somewhat overblown and that at least my experience with talking about race and racism with my students, it's almost always been quite a productive and even and, and, and quite positive experience. I teach at an institution, it's a regional comprehensive university in the University of Wisconsin system that when I first got here, had a student body that was about 94% white. Mm -hmm. And so my whole time here, I've, I've had these courses where we've talked about race and racism. And I feel as though almost without exception, those courses have gone very well and that my students, again, uh, the vast majority of whom are white, very receptive to the knowledge and the learning about our country's race and racism as we talk about it in rhetoric and literature, which is my specialty. So your experience was not that there's a kind of reluctance or sort of refusal to engage with what is considered and often framed as difficult conversations or topics. You just said that some of the topics you have discussed are, are race and racism, and you've made the argument that this is a specific category that informs our discussions of free speech, mm -hmm. right? So you, didn't, you have not had this experience, and I actually share this. I've also I've taught for a very long time, and I have not actually had the feeling that students back away from discussions. I think they actually quite thoughtfully slow down and say, we want to find a way to talk about these things because we're quite aware that it's very difficult to talk about them. So that's what we're in the university for. But at the same time, you're saying that the public discussion has been this kind of representation of the university as a very problematic space where we've witnessed the end of free speech. Right, where you know certain professors and many students walk around cowed, afraid to open their mouths, um, that it's kind of stifling inquiry. I, I just it just hasn't been my experience, and and I'm not saying that because it hasn't been my experience that there aren't people who have had this experience. I just don't think, again, my opinion that uh, it's happening at the level or with consistency that some of these uh, these pieces imply. And I've started to talk to my students quite intentionally about free speech over the last 
couple of years since you know the publication of that piece and talking about terminology that they may or may not be familiar with, usually with regard to how to refer to racial and ethnic groups. And I asked them, I say, you know, have you ever had a teacher or a professor basically sit down with you and say, you know, here's some standard usage that you know you might encounter in reading journalism or in your classes that is generally thought of as acceptable and inoffensive. And I'm not kind of pulling these out of thin air. I get a lot of this information from journalistic style guides. And I say this is fairly non-controversial, I think. You know, this 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 particular journalistic organization says, you know, here's how you might want to use this word or that word. And they generally my students generally say, you know, that's that's just never happened. And they then have to learn this terminology on their own, which I think, at least with my students here at the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire, does lead to some anxiety about talking about race. And so, you know, we try to address this early on in the semester. I say, you know, you know, here's here's what these style guides recommend. Here are some anachronisms that you may or may not be aware of as being offensive nowadays. So. A couple of years ago, there was that incident on Good Morning America where one of the hosts used the term colored people to refer to actors of color. And I was on a radio program talking about how I think a lot of young people where I teach, I get really confused by terms such as colored people and people of color. And I I say it actually makes some sense that that confusion happens, that they make those mistakes. I teach early American literature, Asian American literature. So halfway through a semester, a student may use the term colored people. And then you have to stop class. You have to say, you know, that's that's an anachronism. It probably misrepresents what you mean when you're referring to this group of people. But it's an awkward situation where maybe the student is embarrassed. And as a professor, as an educator, you can't just let a, a term like that hang in the air. So you, you have to talk about it. But doing it early now and giving them options is something that I've incorporated into my classes. And I tell them, what if what some people call political correctness doesn't restrict your speech, but actually gives you a greater capacity for speech? And what I mean by that is, what if you didn't know that you would refer to somebody like my son as mixed race, that that you just didn't know that that was a common and accepted term to talk about a particular group of people. And now you know, and now you can use that term in your discourse and uh, feel you know, confident that it's not an offensive term, that, that they have more capacity for speech if they learn these terms. It's interesting, what you're talking about is actually not speech codes, but kind of sort of shared vocabularies that universities are partly what we're trying to develop. And what you're saying is that I think it could be an enabling discussion to say well, you're learning more, you're learning more precise terms possibly, terms that more ac- accurately reflect the experience of other people. Mm-hmm. And yet there's a sense that some people feel this is taking away from their right to use a term that they like. They grew up with this term or they think this is the right term. And then there's this sense that they're being told to use a different term and who is to say this is the right term sort of mm-hmm. this kind of authority. It's interesting when you're talking about your classroom experience as a teacher, you try to explain why a particular term is preferable to other ones, not just mm-hmm. because you personally like it, but because in your capacity as a teacher, a professor of English and writing, 
and expression, you actually can give a bit of a sense of the history of a term of what words do. But I think for other people that feels, who are you to step in and tell me how to say something? Right. And so I make it clear. I teach at the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire. So we're a state institution. And, you know, there, there are very few things that I can do to restrict your speech unless you're obviously threatening somebody with your speech. And I wanted to make that clear. That said, you know, the idea of what constitutes a threat is quite ambiguous. And we have that conversation about how it might be easy for one group to say, well, that's not threatening at all. Whereas uh, members of another group would say, no, you know, there's a very decent chance that violence will follow a phrase like that, given my experience, given the experience of people who are, are like me. But I find that the, the students are very receptive to this information that, as I've said, hasn't been delivered to them in, a, in an institutional or systematic way before. And it's not a speech code. I'm saying, you know, these are your options. If you didn't know, if you didn't have these options before, or if you didn't know that that was the possibility to, you know, refer to this particular group that way, then now you do. And then they, they say, so why, you know, why do these terms change so often, right? So why, I tell them about my parents and I say, you know, would it surprise you that my parents who immigrated to this country with me in 1970 refer to themselves as Orientals? And... I said, uh, you know, it really shouldn't surprise you that my parents refer to themselves that way and conceive of themselves that way because they've been living in this country since 1970 <laughs> and, you know, went for a long time. That was how people referred to them. And I say, you know, these terms change for really only one reason. The group that they refer to suddenly has enough social capital and power to say, you know what, I'd like to decide what I'm called. I'd like to decide how you refer to me. And so rather than colored people, I think people of color or black people or African-Americans will be preferable. And they might not be able to see that given their age, but I say, just think about transgender people now and how we're in this liminal moment where you are going to run into people who say, you know, I'm just not going to say they and them. Uh, that's just not my experience. It's confusing to me. It's something that's too new and goes against what I had learned. But then you also have people who are very comfortable doing that only because they are parts of communities where it's become more normalized. And I say, just think about that, you know, because with these, these racialized terms, it may be a little bit too far back in history for people your age to really grasp. But you are in a liminal moment now, and you can understand how language is a battleground these days. I find this really useful that you're explaining this is actually an instance of different groups or even individuals sort of using their what we would consider speech rights in this country and say, I have a right to define myself. Yes. And actually I have a right to inform you. This is how I prefer to be referred to. And what they're saying is, and this default assumption that supposedly there was this one sort of normal, normative kind of organic way of referring to people actually put me in a different place that I do not want to be in. So I have a right to participate in how speech is done in this country. So I, you're saying that the, the actually the, the rephrasing of group identities is actually driven from a kind of really powerful exercise of free speech in this country. People are saying we have a right to participate in discourse. Participating in discourse means actually determining what terms are used. So in some ways, one would think that free speech absolutists, free speech advocates would be the first to celebrate this and say, wow, mm -hmm. we now have groups who actually say this is how we would like to be referred to. And yeah. I've had these conversations with different people. So your colleague Stanley Fish, who is one of the great you know, free speech 
theoreticians who does not believe that free speech is actually even a thing. And <laughs> if, if we've had a lot of discussions and then to summarize, he's come around and said, Uli, you have a point. Actually, I'm in a university. I can learn new terms and vocabularies. It doesn't actually compromise either me or the rules of English grammar, which he as a Milton scholar knows is a very flexible thing. And he said, maybe you're right. Maybe actually I should refer to the students. If a student wants to be referred to as they and them, I'll just do it. Just right. like Stanley Fish, who's you know lived a long, distinguished career and is continuing to do so, has lived through very different ways of phrasing different identities. So what you're saying is an exercise of gaining voice. I think then people say... Well, if you tell me you want to be referred to in this way, I want to stick with my way because yes. otherwise you're infringing on my free speech rights. So, David, if I want to use if you, so, if I want to use a term to refer to you or your family in a certain way, that is up to me. And you're saying it's not quite up to you in this mm -hmm. shared space that we live in, which is our kind of vibrant democracy. Right. I mean. It it's up to them in the sense that they can use it unless, you know, there is an obvious threat that comes with calling me an Oriental, then they can use it. But there'll be the kind of social backlash to using those kinds of anachronisms. And in a way that's really not meant to promote community or to kind of further speech. It's, it's in a way to maybe kind of restate your own position in a way that, that clearly offends or even hurts another person. And again, I think sometimes we lose sight of when we talk about free speech and we talk about language on campus, that, that we're serving students foremost, at least I'm serving students foremost. And when I have these conversations with my students uh, and, I, and I lay it out to them, I lay this argument out to them that these terms change because the people that they are referring to suddenly have gained enough social power or capital to say that I'd like to be called this instead. That's a very reasonable argument for my students, again, most of whom are white, and they get it. They, you know, they, they would belong to some groups, too, where they think it's important to be able to define yourself and understand the hurt that goes along with another group who just kind of stick by their guns and say, this is what I've always done, and who are you to tell me that I can't do it? They could do that, but I, I, it's just a very small minority, almost none of my students have adopted that position because, as I said, the alternative is reasonable. I use an example with my students frequently where I say that all faculty in my generation had to learn, and we would not, Probably many of us would not refer to our female students who are 18 or 19 freshmen as the girls mm -hmm. and to the male students as either guys or students. You just don't do that. They are young women. And we don't say we don't use the term girls because it belittles actually. And it actually does something else because it puts them in the position of having to prove that they belong in the same way to the classroom because they suddenly children or not adults and not considered that. And that is language that has changed and shifted, definitely. That was completely probably common 20, 25 years ago. Not as common, but still more acceptable than today. And all the women and all the men in my classes say, oh, that would be totally inappropriate. Mm -hmm. So they feel that 
actually they do know that changes that they've lived themselves through social changes that they find now completely normal and they would think to go back to something else that they also tend to think i think when they list, would listen to an explanation such as yours that otherwise it would be going back that there is an amount of progress in allowing people to define themselves on their own terms i think in these articles that i was talking about that foment this idea of a free speech controversy there's this idea of professors as high core ideologues who have kind of always believed this way and you're trying to indoctrinate your students into a particular mode of speech but i found it very helpful to model my own learning for them just as you're describing and personal pronouns they and them i think are a great example and when i walk into my class on the first day of the semester i go over the syllabus and we talk about the course and then sometimes i say this is to my writing students who may um my first year writing students who may have never seen me before, I said, you know, you can be honest with me. Is, is it somewhat surprising to you that somebody who looks like me is your writing or English professor? And then a lot of them have this look on their face. They, they know exactly what I mean, but they're a little bit too polite to say so. But there's always a handful who uh, will raise their hands and say, yeah, you know, it is. And it's and I say it's because of my race, isn't it? And they said, yes. And I said, it's not racist to admit that it's it's you know you've been socialized to think about your english professor as somebody who doesn't look like me and i'm trying to remember where i was going with this uli well did you model in your own behavior yes rather than right. telling people what to do sort of you actually enacted right and so if if you're in the academy you look like me and you're an english professor and you are talking to a colleague and you're obviously using uh, kind of a singular subject, and then you you say they and them, an effort to make them agree, and they look at you and they they and you're saying you know they're thinking that you've got your subject verb agreement wrong, and you think this is made even worse by the fact that I'm an Asian American and I'm an English professor. Well, that kept me a long time, or maybe longer than I had liked, from making that that adjustment. Because I, I pride myself on my writing just as you do, you know, that, that I think I'm a good writer. And it just didn't seem correct to me based on my education to do that. But then I, I just sat down and I thought, what does it matter? I thought, at the worst, I lose the respect of somebody who probably isn't going to agree with me on these other issues anyway. And what is at stake, I think, is somebody feeling as though they are included in my classroom, that they are respected by me and their potential for learning. That, that is what is at stake. And, and I said, who cares then if somebody thinks that I don't know my subject verb agreement? I know that I do. My writing speaks for itself. And I think sometimes I, I just really wonder why so much of our identity is hung up on the ability to say certain words, such as the N word. That, that what is at stake, really? Because it's, you know, it's, I think that's, that's the question to be answered, that there is something really tremendous at stake over the usage of, of words like that. When you're describing what's at stake, I want to stay a little bit with that, that the students who you are addressing, you said feel included. Can you stay a little bit with that? What, because it's not a simple way to say we just want to make them feel included. They're already in the room, so... What do you need to do to make them feel included? Isn't everybody included by dint of the fact that they were admitted to your university and enrolled in your class? So mm -hmm. what's at stake here? Because I think it touches on 
very fundamental questions in American democracy, and you're saying you bring up, you know, the very charged, the, the N-word, which is the signifier of violent racism that is around in this country that you can encounter everywhere. It's not that it's a never spoken word. It's spoken by many people in positions of power, etc. But what, what does inclusion then mean, not just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a word that makes you feel included, and then I move on. Yeah. I'm going to go back to that Good Morning America example that I had mentioned earlier, and I believe the host's name is Amy Robach. So do you recall this incident, yes. Uli? Right. So she apologized afterwards. She said she meant to say people of color. And there was a social media firestorm over it, people calling for her to be fired. So I tell my students, I said, you know, I, if, you, if you ask for my opinion, I don't think that she should be fired. We, I also but think I, we, which we should note, she apologized. Yes. Which I think is a very important part of American discourse right now. There's this kind of, these kind of standoffs between someone said something offensive, someone then on social media takes them to task. That the right. apology is a very important part of discourse that she apologized. And if she didn't modify it right away, then that's actually, a, 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 let's say, a positive thing for the moment, right? Exactly. And that, that was a very important move. And I said, the, you know, the apology is accepted. But let me also try to explain to you why it was the incident was still annoying to me and quite angering for other people. And the fact is that a person can rise close to or to the top of her profession that you become a host of Good Morning America. And the words colored people can slip off your tongue. And it just seems like something that wouldn't happen if a term like people of color were part of your vernacular. That is, if you said it every day with your colleagues, if you worked enough with people of color so that it became natural for you to say that term. And so what was annoying was that you can still succeed in most industries in this society and not have to care about certain groups of people and their feelings and what they desire to be called. Out of no malice, don't get me wrong, it's not like, you know, she's, she's purposefully, you know, saying colored people to insult others. It's just that you can still rise, that it's no barrier to your success, that you don't have to have this knowledge, that it's optional to your success. And so this gets back to your question about being included, that I think that you're included when your feelings aren't optional, you know, that when the person who is in charge of your learning in that class, or at least, you know, the person who is running the class, honors your sense of yourself enough to try to make you feel included by listening to your preferences and not insisting upon you know, their own history and preferences to refer to you. That is, that you, you change because you understand that you're part of a diverse democracy, whether that's a classroom or whether that's a large television audience, and you make the point as the principal actor at that moment that nothing is optional here, that we're all uh, part of this together. And I think that was what was annoying was in so many ways, and you know what I'm talking about, that equity and diversity and anti-racism are plus categories, that they're not constitutive of excellence, that they're great if you have them, but 
they are optional. So what you're saying is inclusion means more than just uh, recognizing someone's in the room and kind of tolerating that. So I want to stay with some of these words because I think they're very important. So when you said it's not just taking into consideration how someone feels in your classroom, I'm I'm a bit worried about this, the focus on feelings and an offended feelings. And I've done my share of reading on the free speech controversies. There's a very systematic attempt to keep the discussion in this one box where it says someone says something and someone else is offended. But mm-hmm. we cannot just take care of people being offended because everybody will be offended at some point or at something. And then everybody in America will be offended at each other. That doesn't work. So there are other terms that people use. So what you just said is more sounds to me more, and I'm going to use some other terms, that it doesn't respect somebody. It doesn't Mm -hmm. acknowledge their dignity. It doesn't acknowledge their equal right of participating in this space on equal terms. And I'm Mm -hmm. using equality because it's a legal concept in our country. Mm -hmm. Dignity actually isn't really as much a workable legal concept in the United States as in other countries. But I think it shifts it into something that's tangible for people to say, Oh, this crosses into another space. It's not just the student was a little put out. Well, that's tough. Get over it. Toughen mm-hmm. up. Learn to mm-hmm. put up with it. There's a big argument that's saying you've written about this. Say, this actually builds up your resilience. Right. Being, being a little exposed to a little racism, sexism, and homophobia, transphobia here and there makes you into a stronger, robust citizen. <laughs> it's a weird requirement. It's only exacted on minorities in this country. <laughs> this makes mm-hmm. you into a better American. Mm-hmm. Inclusion goes from the personal experience of somebody to a kind of shared social space that, mm-hmm. is, that touches on the law and on our assumptions about what political coexistence means, and it touches upon respecting other people on their own terms. So it's and it's what's interesting to me is what you, your work is that you're saying language has something so fundamental to do with that. Mm-hmm. It's not that you have a a rule in your classroom and a uh, you know, laws that govern the classroom, how to include and exclude somebody. But by language, we can we can basically make this room work in certain ways or not work in other ways. Right. For me, it all goes back to learning. And I think students understand this, which is that there are lots of things that can get in the way of learning. But sometimes I, I think that we think too much on the individual level. Like, Let's say that somebody who is a racial minority is offended by something that somebody else says, and then I think it's a fairly reasonable argument to say that that person's learning has been interfered with. Because all of us know that there, all of us who are members of certain minority groups know that there are words that you can use, even in critical or ironic or well-intentioned ways, that, that stop you from kind of concentrating and focusing in the way that you had been, where you... You start trying to make sense of why that person said that word. And so the opportunity for learning is, is interrupted, and it may never get back on track, at least for that particular class. But I, I would say that we need to think more communally rather than just individually, that that's that person's problem and that that person needs to get over it. And I also think it's weird, this assumption that members of these minority groups, minoritized groups, are not resilient already. <laughs> <laughs> that they're less, somehow less resilient than those who haven't had to deal with these language issues in quite the same way. But the learning of those students who aren't primarily targeted is uh, attenuated as well. It's my belief, I tell my students, I say, 
it's really my goal for us to begin to trust one another in this classroom because if it's just me talking in front of you in this classroom, I'll be quite honest with you, you can watch a video or you know, find some other way to get this information delivered to you because I think something very special happens in person when we're in a classroom together and that is because we can all talk about our experiences and ideas. And that doesn't happen if we don't trust one another. So that person's inability to feel trust in that classroom, to talk about their experiences is damaging to everybody. And it's not just an individual experience, it's a communal experience. And so I, I wish that, that we would understand that we're all affected by this sense of hurt and injury and offense that others feel. And it's very easy to say that, that they, they're not feeling it or they're just making a big deal out of it because there's another injury going on as well, and that's to the learning of everyone. Why do you think this is such a hard thing to convey to the outside where, as we said, this national conversation has been this very particular representation of the university in crisis? And and I think there's two things happening. I think there's a partly is a, a genuine misunderstanding. People are not quite familiar what happens on campuses. I was in the administration for 11 years. I've been teaching for 21 years. I have never seen a trigger warning in its natural habitat. I have a lot of colleagues who teach respectfully and very, very difficult subject matter, and we'll tell the students to prepare and frame a discussion and say, we're now going to look at this, and this is, contains this kind of material, which could which is most likely incredibly offensive to just about everybody. So this idea that the university is in crisis is a bit maybe just a misunderstanding, but there's something larger at stake that yeah. the university is supposed to be this model for our democracy and supposed to have a more open debate, or is it supposed to be the debate that this country should have in any case? And how do you see that in relation to the, what's the public, what the public is going through right now? Right. Well, I don't think anybody likes to be told that they can't do something. But members of minoritized groups have been told that their whole life and have carried on understanding that, very simply, that that's life. That's our existence in society. So in the, the, the article that I wrote for NPR, it was trying to contextualize this critical race theory concept called the empathic fallacy, contextualize it to contemporary free speech debates. So I, I teach a lot of concepts from critical race theory in my, in my courses, and I, I try to teach this one short story, my courses that are relevant to it, and it's, it's a story called The Space Traders. I don't know if you've uh, ever read it, but it's written by legal scholar Derek Bell, who... Okay. Right, who NYU? We were, uh, we were so humbled and proud to have him teach at New York yes. University Law School for a long time, right? Yes. Right, absolutely. And his story and, and why he was teaching at NYU is, yes. is 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 a heroic story to me. But in the story, there is character, a black man who's who's trying to stop this tragic thing from happening, and he he and he 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 only has one way to do it. Um, he's almost like this tragic hero where. <laughs> You know, he's giving he's giving people his thoughts, but nobody's nobody's really listening to him. And he says uh, this line that I try to present to my students to have a conversation about. I said, tell me what you think about this. So this this person says that primary motivation for racism in this country is the deeply held belief that black people should not have what white people do not have. 
so that's that's part of his big plan. But I said, let's have a conversation about it. You know, do you do you think that this is a uh, a realistic way of thinking about why there's often racist backlash or or just backlash in general to policy that has to do with resource with the direction of resources. And when I when I'm thinking about you know why saying the N word is so important to some people who aren't black, I, I always kind of return to that idea that black people shouldn't have what white people don't have. That it's almost untenable for you know this other group uh, to have a power or privilege or resources that you know because of uh, social taboos or speech codes or what have you that is kept from you. And I said, you know, this isn't, this isn't just about the N word, you know, think about affirmative action, think about Obamacare, think about any kind of resource allocation and the backlash that often follows the perception that minority groups, especially black people are getting things that are withheld from white people. This is an interesting definition. I want to stay with this kind of dialectical definition by Derek Bell. So that, that minoritized groups, black people, also women or so should not have what, white people, white men do not have. Mm-hmm. So they shouldn't get something. So if I can't get it, then they should definitely not get it. And yeah. So the achievement of anybody from a minority group is inevitably going to be questioned or denied that yeah. how would a woman be in my position or take a position like that? How would someone like Derek Bell, African-American scholar, get a tenured position at first Harvard Law School, then mm-hmm. New York University Law School? So you're sort of trying to get your students to understand what motivates this kind of conditioning to think that way about others. And those who aren't part of universities and who aren't even, say, a part of my class don't understand the reason why this happens. I think it's very easy to think that these theories are put out there to shame white students, to make them feel defensive about being white, as I tell all of my students, you know, what we learn in this class is for our personal liberation. That is, racism has done a number on all of us just in different ways. And the more we learn about it, the more control we have over our lives, the more choices that we have to live our lives. So when I, when I teach them about the history of race and racism in the United States, and they tell me that they never learned these things, I said, uh, what that means is that you have fewer options to live your life. So I had a, you know, this, this career changing moment and maybe about eight years ago when I had a graduate student, a white woman who's older than I am. And she was taking my class where we were having these conversations about race and racism. And she came into my office hours and wanted to talk about the class because the material was something that she had never encountered before. And she said, you know, Dr. She, um, I'm really interested in the class. I have to say that we've we've never talked about race like this, whether it was in high school or other classes that I've had. I'm trying to make some sense out of it. And I said, um, that's great. You know, let's talk about it. She says, you know, I actually feel angry that this information has not been a part of my experience. And I said, you know, anger sometimes is a natural response to feeling as though something has been kept from you. And I said, but do you know why you're angry? And she said, yes, I would have lived my life differently. And it was was the perfect answer to me. And I, I try to repeat that to all of my classes, that 
when groups do things in your name as a white person, right? Or if groups, you know, kind of speak for you, then they purport to know what's good for you. And then other information is much more difficult to access for that reason. And all that means to me is that you simply have less information and now fewer options or choices for how to live your life. To me, like, I think the, the controversy is backward. The idea is that somehow this discussion about free speech you know, restricts your liberty, restricts your options and your choices. But it's been my experience as I've been saying that, no, you know, it gives you more options for live, to live your life because you're operating with a clearer sense of reality and history. It's a beautiful example is what teaching does, that it teaches it, you can be taught something about what we would call structural things, larger questions, um, theoretical conceptions, but it touches you in a place that as a student you did not know. It mm -hmm. actually doesn't just revise something because it adds more layers of knowledge and data or information, but actually that your student said, I did not know something about myself that I can now activate because I didn't know I was kind of sleepwalking on this privilege that I was told I was sharing and participating in, while in reality, maybe it was obscuring something else to me of who I could be. Right. What you could do for a living, where you might live, who you might befriend or fall in love with. Some of those options are just taking, taken off the table because of choices that other groups had made for you. I really like listening to you sort of talk about your experience of teaching students, and you said you have about 93%. Roughly, you probably don't, you know, make them fill out a paper before they come into <laughs> class, right? Who Those are just our institutional data. That's right. And, but it's quite powerful that teaching actually can be that place to alert people to the fact. I, f I find this a very important point to say that what's called in shorthand white privilege, which I think doesn't generate a lot of insight as a term because I think it starts to make people defensive, uh, white people necessarily, mostly. So I don't think it really results in what people want it to result in. But that you're saying you can teach that in a way that empowers them. And actually, you give them more tools to understand the world. You say the world is structured in certain ways, and you are part of this, and you have been embedded in a kind of structure that doesn't serve you necessarily. Yes, and... And I do that through modeling my own experience, and it's taken me, you know, it took me several years as a professor to be able to do that, but now I'm glad that I can. So when my students said I would have lived my life differently, I thought that uh, there was a very um, clear and good possibility that my life could have been completely different as an Asian American academic, right? Now, my specialty is Asian American literature, but... There's a way that you can teach, I think, Asian American literature without kind of engaging in, you know, these social issues firsthand that, you, you know, for lack of a better word, take a very academic approach to it. But I tell them, I said, you know, I honestly believe that these days I'm about as close to a white man as you can get without being a white man. That is, I, I speak without a discernible Asian accent. I'm an American citizen. I'm married to a white woman and I'm a middle class person. And so I said, I exist in this liminal racial space where, yeah, of course, I'd be called out for being Asian American in some contexts. But generally, I can operate in these that sometimes I'm called out 
or attention is called to my being an Asian American. But I can operate in spaces where the majority of people are white, and not only that, that they feel comfortable around me. And I said, it would have been very easy for me to live my life that way. So one of the things I write a lot about is affirmative action. And I talk about my experiences with affirmative action because there are a lot of Chinese Americans, particularly new immigrants from China, who are very against affirmative action. And I tell them, you know, there was a possibility that I could have been that Chinese American because of how easy it was for me to assimilate into a culture that generally welcomed me, right, and gave me the same types of privileges. So it's been helpful for me to be that kind of person of color, to be an East Asian American who lived a good chunk of his life not wanting to think about himself as an Asian American, as a non-white person, but very simply being lucky enough to meet certain people at certain times in my life where I could live my life differently. You know, that, that opened up new choices for me. And, and that's been very successful in, in the classroom to, to, to talk about myself that way. My students generally appreciate it. It's very powerful. It reminds me, I've, I've asked different people about this sort of, James Baldwin said, if you're not really thinking through what racism does for you, you're not a full human being. He sort of, I mean, he, he was trying to be a preacher. It's a bit of a religious idea. He said, spiritually, you're just stunted in a way. You're not a full human being. And then mm -hmm. Toni Morrison says in a quite powerful sort of very brief interview she did on Charlie Rose many, many years ago, and she said, it is a form of insanity, of absolute madness as a white person in America not to be aware of what racism does for you and what it does to other people and to somehow believe this actually benefits you. So right. Baldwin said, spiritually you're stunted. But Toni Morrison said, you are actually mentally insane. It's a form mm -hmm. of madness, which people can inhabit their whole lifetime. And you're saying teaching actually allowed you to learn something about yourself, to be in a classroom, to be sort of more embodied or present in a way, uh, sort of, and to, and to then, I think, allow your students to see themselves as saying, I could actually be more than myself and not less. Mm -hmm. By being aware of racism, it doesn't take away who I am. Right. I don't have to give up my whiteness and feel ashamed and guilty. You have to probably work through anger or guilt or whatever the feelings may be, but you'll arrive at a place where actually you are more, more, more of a human being in a way, more in touch with all parts of yourself than before. And I think mm -hmm. that's very hard to get to. And I think, and I think you're right. The speech debate kind of foreshortens all of that and says, "Oh, it's about someone's right and someone's non-right." It's. It, I think you're saying something very different. That actually, language is that which can make us, and also prohibit us from becoming ourselves if we don't think about it. Yeah, when, when you see the world for as it is, that is when you see it more risk realistically because you are engaging with this history and knowledge about race and racism, you have more choices for how to live your life, to live an ethical life. And there's this, before he left Twitter, Ta-Nehisi Coates had this tweet, you know, that, that really uh, resonated with me. And before I tell that, you know, he, there was a backstory to it in a bunch of tweets. I blogged about this where he... He was talking about being a student at Howard and how he had these beliefs about why there was conflict between black people and white people throughout history. And 
It came from this ahistorical notion of black people being sun people and white people being ice people, and that that was the reason why that was going on. I think he kind of paraphrased the story in um, Between the World and Me, but uh, he was tweeting it out before then. And then uh, his history professor at Howard said, yeah, that's all nonsense. He said, yeah, that's, that's not true. Let me tell you why there's a conflict between black people and white people. And Coates said it was really difficult to hear that from his history professor. You know, to have this, this body of, of knowledge that you thought to be true gainsayed by somebody that you respected. But he said it was really important for him to hear that because it allowed him to see his own history and the history of black people more realistically, which gave him more choices and prepared him better for life. And then he, he followed it with this tweet. And he said, the burden of whiteness is this. You can live in the world of myth and be taken seriously. And for me, you know, I said, that's, that's it. I tell my students, I want you to live the, the, the fullest lives that you can live, whatever race that you have, the fullest, most ethical lives that you can live. But that can't happen if you don't see the world realistically and operate in a world of myth where very likely, if you are a white person, people will join you in that world of myth and continue to support a way of looking at the world that doesn't comport with reality. And, and myth here in the sense of Roland Barthes or something, a kind of, a kind of version of reality that is not reality actually but that people share to believe in it because it serves some other purpose it's kind of a fantasy or some kind of yeah. a fiction that leaves out certain things because it benefits some people but it looks like it's reality so the well, myth one, that one of those one of those myths might be the idea that unrestricted free speech will lead to a democratic society right you know you you were, you were talking about leotard in your op-ed for the new york times and you know this these, these kind of meta-narratives that, you know, he has challenged. And I, I would have to imagine that, you know, free speech, you know, leads to a more unlimited free speech, leads to a more democratic society would have to be one of those meta-narratives, right? And so the reason why I was writing that piece partly is to say that it can be dangerous to live your life by a meta-narrative like that, which, you know, is mythical, because it may further the idea or this notion that the arc of the moral universe is long but bends toward justice, right? Like those two narratives support one another. They're mutually constitutive. And not only that, but uh, colorblindness, the narrative of colorblindness is a part of that narrative too. So for me, free speech is embedded in this larger anti-racist project. That is, what if, as I said in my NPR article, what if it doesn't lead? to this kind of liberation, what if it doesn't lead to this better society, then, you know, we would just be kind of furthering this mythology that would benefit one group over another. And again, I, I don't think this is necessarily pessimistic. Like, I don't think it's necessarily, again, you know, quoting Derek Bell to think that if racism is permanent, that that is a situation that is going to limit personal liberation. It will in some ways, but in other ways, it will lead a person into directions that could never be realized in you know, a mythological situation where we feel like justice is bound to happen or is inevitable. It's really fascinating. I've been, I mean, I, I would love to have another hour of this. It's interesting what you're saying to say we 
giving up the idea that progress is inevitable, that we're moving toward the light, that having all this speech is really good, that having hate speech is actually ultimately just makes us stronger to be overcome, is a very tempting myth, but it also kind of abdicates you of responsibility because things will just work out, the best idea will win out, sunlight will be the disinfectant, etc. And you're saying, what if we actually accept the fact that there will be racism, there will be mm -hmm. sexism? But what you said earlier during our conversation, I would say there could be personal liberation in a very profound and powerful sense that actually allows people to interact in a way that doesn't constrain them. So racism won't go away. When I had asked Tanahasi Coates this question, I was very fortunate. I got to interview him in front of an audience of a thousand oh, people. I asked him the same thing. Baldwin says, it's spiritually, you're stunted. Tony Morrison says, you're insane. What do you think? He said, Uli, that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> it is yeah. not for me to figure out. It is for you to figure out. And in some ways, he was turning it on me and saying, you as a white man, it is not even right for you to ask me this question. But he was very gracious. He's a <laughs> colleague. You know, so, so he, he yeah. indulged me in a way. It was really interesting. And then there was a woman in the audience who said to, uh, my son was in the audience, and she said, oh, my God, I don't think he really cares. Because I was enacting the idea, I said, of why would America care? To Why would white people care about racism? And, she, and I, I sort of thought this is my rhetorical way of getting him to answer. And it was very, he turned it back also to where you are speaking right now and saying, it's a very powerful myth. You'll benefit yeah. from it. But you're living in a myth. And yeah. that will ultimately blind you to your own reality as much as to everybody else's who you keep on saying is not harmed, etc. And that free speech is this very powerful myth right now that somehow I think over, I even think over the last 18 months, from the summer of 2017 and then the events in Charlottesville to today with our administration, I think people are realizing, what if actually... Absolute free speech doesn't liberate people from anything. It just keeps on people spouting racist nonsense. And it won't go away. It will not be refuted or defeated. So, And you're saying there's a more clear-eyed way of saying, this does not prevent us from teaching ourselves and others actually how this all works. Yeah, we, we abandon that meta-narrative of, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long that bends toward justice. And that's liberating. That's personally liberating. I would love for it to be true, but it's constraining in ways if, you know, you're always falling back on that. And I tell my students, I blogged about this as well, you know, I said, I said, you know, to be honest with you, if all you care about is, or, you know, the one thing that you really care about is being materially successful in this world and having a good job, buying a house, living comfortably, taking vacations, I said, you should stop talking about race and racism in public right now. Right. Because after you graduate from this university where some of your courses are asking you to engage with these ideas, that's not going to advance your career. That's not going to make you a lot more friends. It's not going to make other people want to be around you. And this goes double for you if you're a person of color. Right. If, if, you, if your goal is that material success, but I said, I, I hope that I hope that you want more for yourself than that. And, you know, Coates was uh, tweeting at another time and he was talking about situations. I don't think he was talking about the panel that, that you were on because this was this was a few years back. But he says he's, he's almost always asked at the end of these talks by people who say, can you give me some hope for the future? <laughs> right. <You're laughs> that okay. was probably me. He did not refer to me when he said that because he was much more friendly in a way. But it was the right yeah. thing to ask me. <laughs> right. 
and, uh, you know, is there hope for this anti-racist future? And, uh, and he says, no, I don't think so. And he says, you know what, though? It, and people say, well, that's, that's really depressing because if you feel like racism is permanent, then why struggle? And he said, wow, the answer to that's really simple. It's so I can sleep at night. That's right. And, and he said, you have to do this for yourself, that, that keeping your conscience is the most important thing that can happen here, right? And that if you kind of accept that racism is, is permanent, that doesn't mean that you stop fighting. You still fight for it, even though you suspect that you may lose. Good people throughout history have kept fighting, knowing that the odds were against them. And you do it to keep your conscience because you know that it's right, and so that you can sleep at night. And it's not because you're going to be part of a, a, a larger, grander narrative of justice. It's a, it's a moral imperative, not because it serves you, but it does something else. There's this very well-known quote by Franz Kafka, who said, there's an abundance of hope, just none for us. <laughs> there's infinite amounts of hope in the universe, just not for us. In right. some ways, he's saying there is always cause and reason to do something, but it's not going to be a directly result, a result or a solution. The other thing I thought, when you talk to your students, what to aspire to in life, I was just reading Derek Bell's book, I think it's called Ethical Ambition. Yeah. And he talks about whether you can be successful in the material world and keep your ethical compass. And he says, absolutely. He said mm -hmm. it is very difficult and a challenge, but he was a tenured law professor. He was a successful person. And he said, I can reconcile that with having ethical standards. And he proved that during his lifetime because he took principled stances, took great risks. They worked out in some ways, but he also paid dearly, I think. So in some, there's this kind of moment to find where you, you're going to keep on doing the work. Yeah. You're not going to see direct results. But you'll, he said, what you gain, Derek Bell says, you gain a certain coherence about yourself. And you actually know who you are. Yeah. which is a really great reward that otherwise you just keep on doing the rat race, et cetera, trying to find money, fame, and power. But he said, you don't know who you are. He said, right. Yeah, you can sleep at night. And having as many choices as possible then, if you're going to lead this ethically ambitious life, is imperative, right? And that means reconciling yourself with history, with reality, and not kind of living within this, you know, this mythology or this grand meta-narrative. David, I, I want to leave our listeners with a referral to your blog. I read the pieces, <laughs> I think, on the athletes. It's fantastic, actually, the whole discussion of black athletes and what is going on there, the one on every seeing Get Out for the second or 50th <laughs> time. So what's your blog called? Can you uh, tell our listeners? Yeah, well, let me give you the, the one that I write for Arcade. Arcade is a, a digital humanities salon for Stanford University. So I believe the address is just uh, arcade.stanford.edu, and the ones that you referenced are, appear on that blog. Yeah, so. yeah it's, fan it's fantastic. Uh, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation, and I also want to say it's so wonderful to hear that in your teaching practice, you sort of actually sort of embody and come up with these kind of ways of being an ethical person in today's world. Yes, and, and it's, it's mutually, mutually beneficiary for, I hope, my students, but it, it is definitely so for me. And, and you know, to, to be more human, to, to feel more human you know, because of these conversations and my students and this opportunity to be a professor does that.
All right. Thank you so much to Professor David Chi from the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire. And I hope that I can have you back on the podcast at a later time. Sounds great, Julie. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye.